Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, if you or someone in your family works in the fast food or healthcare industries, needs to use sick time, chances are they have benefited from the work done by SEIU, the state's largest union. Our guest today, Tia Orr, runs the show at SEIU, and she's here to talk about the hot labor summer, organized labor's banner year up in Sacramento, and where they parted ways on occasion with Governor Gavin Newsom and his veto pen. We'll talk about all that. Uh, Marisa, but speaking of uh, Gavin Newsom, he's been a globetrotting. Yeah. He's done vetoing and signing bills, and so he's been uh, out of the country. He's uh, made a stop in Israel, brief stop, and has been in China for the last few days. Two very big hot spots in the world. Uh, a little bit of controversy in that he you know, didn't meet with any uh, Palestinians when he was in Israel, um, but in China, he got some nice pictures, went to the Great Wall, drove a hybrid car, talked about fentanyl, met with Xi Jinping. Um, so, you know, I think you wonder, like, what's he doing there? Why? What's he getting out of it? And uh, why are we spending money on this? I mean, I, OK, so f- to be fair, <clears throat> you and I have covered the last few governors as well. They both made these similar treks to China. Obviously, it's a huge economic powerhouse globally, but especially for California, a lot of close ties. However, this is not the moment that we were in when Jerry Brown went there or Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I do think it's been interesting to do, see. Do you mean in terms of like controversy? And- yeah, like where China sits on the world stage, what our relationship is le- with them. Um, I think a lot of the human rights abuses that obviously uh, folks would like Newsom to be bringing up with President Xi. He did not. He said he brought Back them burner. up with some of the yeah. governors. Um, I, I just think that this is a, a much different moment than it was for, you know, when Jerry Brown went there. Obviously, there's always been tensions. Yeah. Um, and it just does raise questions about sort of does obviously this helps burnish his sort of credentials and it makes him look more like a diplomat and a national figure. But I think it could come with some blowback as well. We'll see. I mean, I think obviously, you know, we were talking about this earlier before with the show that, uh, you know, the Biden administration has signed off on all of this stuff. We do kind of wonder what they're saying behind the scenes. Right. Are uh, they like-, like, is he a shadow president? What is he doing over there? Or let him step in the, man- the, the minefields and see what happens. You know, I think... 
in terms of like this not being the moment, it, you know, these things do get planned a certain number of weeks, months in advance, and it's hard to predict exactly what's going to. I mean, be going I mean, on. more the broader moment, not like October of twenty twenty. Yeah, but just, I, I would yeah. argue though, you know. Um, this is also a time when the Biden administration is trying to lower the temperature, sure. you know, and find some common ground. And I think sometimes having a governor who maybe doesn't have the history of animosity and bad back and forth rhetoric maybe can help and lower the, same the temperature. Responsibilities, a right? Yeah. Like that that a president does. I mean, we should note this was not paid for by us, the taxpayer. This is paid for by the California State Protocol Foundation, uh, which basically means that Newsom and his allies, you know, went and asked for donations from private donors to fund this, which is generally how these trips yeah. are funded. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the media kind of got uh, strong-armed out uh, when, <laughs> uh, the pre- when President Xi Jinping met with the governor. They weren't too happy about that. But, uh, um, you know, that's when you go to a communist country, <laughs> you, know, you don't have a lot of rights. And, right. you know, if they tell you not to go in, you're. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, in. state media was allowed in. American media were not. Sure. Uh, the Chronicle had a headline that they were physically blocked from going into the room. So, again, I think I, I guess my questions would sh- just more be what does this do for Newsom long term? And when he comes home, because a lot of what the Chinese government stands for and a lot of the things he was not able to bring up directly are you know, priorities for him at home, right? And so it's an interesting yeah. kind of juxtaposition. It is. And, you know, it's also a huge Asian population here in California. I'm sure a lot of, although that's going to be a mixed bag too, yeah, depending absolutely. on where you're from. There's, I mean, but, that's what a lot of the human rights groups were bringing yeah. up. Are there people here who cannot go back to, say, Hong Kong because of right. the CCP? Um, and it does come, you know, ahead of APEC, we should mention. This yeah, huge the big Asian international summit, summit coming. Yeah. Xi Jinping may be coming to that. I'm sure the governor will be there as well. We'll, we'll talk about that on another show. But another uh, sort of uh, ripple effect from the governor here locally in San Francisco is this big housing investigation into how slow California or San Francisco is in permitting and approving housing. It's dead last in terms of the amount of time that it takes. And Marisa, you did reporting on that report that came out this week. Uh, and it didn't look good for for San Francisco. Uh, to tell us, like, what are yeah. some of the big impediments? Why does it take so long? I mean, I feel like anyone who's been paying attention will not be surprised at what the state found, which is that we have some of the, or we do have the longest timelines to approve housing, uh, a process that allows for appeals even after something has already been entitled. Um, and, you know, very clearly the, the head of housing and community development for the state, Gustavo Velasquez, says this is why housing is so expensive and native San Franciscans are being priced out. Um, and so they're really demanding a list of 18 fixes, including some changes to the city charter that are really going to sort of fundamentally change the way San Francisco permits housing. Doesn't that require voter approval? Um, some of them may, and they've given them longer timelines. But I did find it very interesting that there is really a list of demands from the state. And they're saying if 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 we do not, you know, comply with these, uh, they the state, you know, could take away funding, could sue San Francisco, and that we could essentially lose all control over planning decisions. So yeah. I think this is something that City Hall and and neighborhood groups and others who have historically blocked a lot of development are going to have to take seriously. I don't, you know, maybe, but, you know, if you really oppose, if you like stopping things for one reason or another, I mean, really, are you, how compelled are you going to be by a threat from Sacramento? I mean, maybe you will be, but I mean, some of these things, these things can be done sort of at a policy level. Absolutely, like, yeah. They don't require voter approval and because that, you know, we're talking 
could be months, year, years before yeah, that happens. Yeah, although I think it will be interesting if some of this goes before voters. I think there's been a real sea change on housing, and I do think that you really see uh, bills and policies being passed at the state level and even embraced at the local level that would have been a third rail even a decade ago. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, of course, and you they know, say they might take this on the road. Other come into your city yeah. soon if well, you're not building yeah, housing. Yeah, well, and interesting because the city of the state did sue Huntington Beach yep. in Orange County, uh, and so they went after Berkeley. They went after Berkeley, so they're what? trying to you know balance the conservative more you know well, red counties. They're going after the counties places. that aren't building. I mean, if you look at the statistics, I mean, one of the things I heard this week is that there's actually a lot of similarities between the way Huntington and Berkeley operate. Um, San Francisco, we're on an island of our own. We have a process that like nobody could even believe at the state level. Yeah, well, and being a city and county probably you know, makes that a little tougher in some ways as well. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Tia Orr. She's the head of SEIU. It's one of the most powerful labor unions in California, and she's the head of it. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And, you know, by any measure, organized labor had not just a good but a really great, some might say, historic year in Sacramento. The governor signed several important bills that were high on labor's priority list, including pay raises for fast food workers and healthcare workers, more paid sick time. And our guest today gets a lot of credit for that, or blame, depending on your point of view, for what happened up there. Tia Orr is executive director of SEIU. It's the largest union in California with 700,000 members. Tia Orr, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. Good to see you. Well, SEIU is short for Service Employees International Union. Uh, Give us a sense of who you represent, what kinds of workers. Well, we represent 700,000 workers across the state of California and growing. Our workers range from county workers, state workers, janitors, um, across the board, child care workers who we recently organized into the union, um, county workers, as I stated, um, health care workers, of course, and we're working to bring fast food workers into the union as well. I mean, that's a big range of people with different interests, employers. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how you kind of came to this work. I know your mom was a state worker. Was politics in your blood as a kid? No, I think fighting for the underdog always was something that was, you know, in me as as my fire and, and motivation. Um, you know, look, I have my own story. I had my son at 19 years old. Okay 
pretty difficult having a kid at that young age. And I found myself ironically doing jobs similar to the jobs of the workers that I represent today. So ironic, but powerful in its own right. Security officers. I was a security officer while going to college Mm. with my young son, who is now 26 years old and working in the legislative space himself. (laughs) I was a home care worker. We represent obviously 380,000 of our 700,000 members are home care workers. I found myself doing that job as a a college worker as well. And so I, I have a deep connection to the work that they do and understand the struggles and trying to stay above water. Tell us a little bit about your hometown. Where did you grow up? What was high school, middle school like for you? Yeah, Sacramento is where ah. I grew up, born and raised. I have hundreds of family members, a big, gigantic family with cousins everywhere. Went to Christian Brothers High School in Sacramento um, with a lot of family members who went to school with us. Um, what percentage of your family are union members, would you say? Oh, God. Um a large portion of them, yeah. because a lot of us are low wage workers and state workers. And Sacramento, as you know, is a big you know, big town. area. Yeah. It's an industry <laughs> town for state workers. So I think back to my aunts and my uncles, my mom, you know, state workers, county workers across the board. You know, you are one of a line of recent sort of very powerful, politically savvy women of color who have come up in the labor ranks. But that was not always the case. I wonder, uh, you know, thinking about one of your predecessors, LaFonza Butler, who we've had on the show now, Senator Butler. Yes. (laughs) I mean, what difference does it make having somebody like yourself? um, You're black, you're Latina. You, as you say, grew up with this family watching these people. Like, how does that impact the way you do your work? Oh, I I think I lead and end with it, right? And I think if you think about Senator Butler and who she is and what I've learned from her, a woman that walks into the room that leads and ends with her values is is someone that I look up to and admire in that regard. But you're right, still to this day, there's not enough women of color that are leading in this space that can come with the stories that I just told you about my own life that can add that to the conversation on strategy and how to mobilize workers to be able to relate to them. I would say it's imperative for us to create a broader table where there's more people that look like us and Senator Butler and others so that we can have those conversations and get real work done. We'll talk more about the Senate race, but were you disappointed in that regard that she didn't run? You know, look, I I trust her immensely and she is a deeply thoughtful person. So when she decides to to do something or not to do something, I know that it was intentional and it was for a good reason. Um, And trust me, we have not seen the end of Senator Butler. She is a young (laughs) woman who has a lot of fire in her and I think has a passion for workers in our communities that's going to continue even after her 14 months serving as U.S. Senator. Yeah, we'll we'll all be watching what she decides to do next. I want to ask, after uh, Butler left SCIU um, and before you came in as the head, uh, there was a scandal, Alma Hernandez. Does former executive director was charged with tax fraud, embezzlement, perjury. Um, the, the charges were not actually related to work at SCIU. They were related to a, a previous campaign. But what was it like coming in on the heels of that? Did you have, you know, mending to do image wise or otherwise with the union? Yeah, of course. You always want to make sure that the members trust that the work that we're doing with their limited resources. Mm -hmm. Remember, we're representing janitors and home care workers who are giving us a portion of their their small paycheck to be able to represent them. And so, of course, you want to assure them that their resources are protected. Um, But Alma Hernandez was a leader in this movement that did amazing things that I don't want to get taken away Mm -hmm. from the conversations that you just mentioned. Um, Her leadership inspired me. It continues to do that. And I think we had to do some instilling in our membership that they're 
their resources were being protected even through her leadership um, and that we were going to continue to push forward and hold their resources very, uh, very accountable and protected. When that story broke and as it unfolded, were you kind of like, you know, what were the first things that went through your mind? And, not, you know, and apart from what you just said about her doing a lot of good things, in terms of the organization, SEIU and its image, reputation and potential downfall? for Yeah, I mean, you certainly want to make sure that you bring the organization back and focus on the work that we have in front of us. At the time, we were pursuing the fast food measure, the first round of it in 257. At the time, we were dealing with the blow up of the COVID pandemic and workers being in fear of their work and losing work in a lot of regards. So the goal for us was just to bring everything back in, continue to project strength and show strength and assure our members again that their resources were being spent to advance their values and their principles. And we were going to stay on track to continue to do the work that we did at SEIU. I just want to say that SEIU, even with the victories we had this year, not these victories don't come from one person. Mm. Our failures don't come from one person. Our movement is about 700,000 workers in SEIU in particular that are our bosses and that guide us and lead us on strategy. And we wanted to make sure that we continue to own that space and let them lead. Well, let's talk about some of those victories. You did have a big year. Um, Why do you think this session was so productive? Like you mentioned sort of the shoulders that you're building on, you know, but it does seem like this was a remarkably prolific year for the labor movement in California. Yeah. You know, I thought about this as I was driving over, you know, the lesson if I walk away from this legislative session to learn is never underestimate the power of workers that are united. And I think that we've seen across the nation, I think stemming from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. workers feeling unprotected, workers feeling unsafe, workers feeling and realizing how underpaid they are in comparison to the CEOs um, that are their employers every single day. That force and that collective action came together to demand the legislature across the nation, especially in California, to respond to their needs and try to influence some reshaping of their economic reality so they can provide for their families. So I give this year and the victories of this year to many years of investment, um, but workers who really stepped out uh, were resilient, I would say risky, in that regard to step on the front lines and make those demands. Aside from the unified workforce and workers uh, letting their voices be heard, what about some of the structural changes in Sacramento, like having a new speaker in Robert oh, Rivas? I think that's a good question. I mean, look, none of these wins are possible if you don't have a legislature that shares the values of the workers who stand on the front lines. And so all of this work that we're doing starts with electing people that look and share the values of their communities. So Robert Rivas, of course, being one of them as speaker, but his caucus and the Democratic Party and making sure that we have people that are black and brown and LGBTQ plus that come from the communities and have stories like me. Mm-hmm. They can they can lend to their decisions on policymaking. We're going to have a big challenge in this coming election with a number of open seats to hold on to that legislative body that is similar and shares the values of those workers. We see it as an opportunity to grow that base. Um, But I know we're going to have to fight with everything we have to continue that and grow it. So the governor, let's talk about Gavin Newsom. (laughs) Um, It was a mixed bag for y'all this year. You know, he signed some very high profile bills, vetoed others, um, including one that would have paid striking workers after two weeks, another that would have offered workplace protections to domestic workers. How would you sum up kind of his record with labor this year and and your relationship with him? Look, I I think I can say unequivocally that the governor listens to workers. And I honestly believe that he shares the values of workers and what their needs are. Um, Like everything in the legislature, um, it takes a long time. 
And for example, if you think about fast food, we worked on that since 2012. It was a group of workers in New York that decided to walk out and demand $15 an hour that many folks, when they heard it, thought was just insanely Mm -hmm. crazy. And 10 years later, now we have the passage of 1228, a council for these fast food workers in California in $20 an hour. Were we disappointed by those vetoes? Of course, right? Striking workers need attention. Domestic workers need to be valued. Um, But we have work to do. And the one thing that I trust about these workers, because I know them, I believe well, is they are resilient and they don't give up. So I imagine these things are going to be coming back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Tia Orr. She runs SEIU. It's the largest union in California, which, by the way, had a very good year up in Sacramento. And back to the governor for a moment. Um, You know, there's a lot of speculation always when a governor signs or vetoes, but especially vetoes a bill that a Democratic legislature has sent to him. What's your take on why he vetoed some of the things he did? I mean, uh, there's a lot of speculation that he's looking ahead to 2028. Yeah, you know, look, I can't, I wish I can get into his mind and dictate or predict what his next step is going to be. But look, he's a thoughtful, a thoughtful governor. Um, he has amazing staff. Um, and it does require us, and I had to do this both with $25 for healthcare as well as fast food, to roll up your sleeves and dig in and make some concessions sometimes and decide if it does any harm to the workforce. And look, we didn't get there this year on those two vehicles or three vehicles that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But again, I hope and am and, and, and expecting those come back next year and conversations with the governor will continue to hopefully get us into a place where he can sign them. Is there a particular bill that you see as the biggest win? I mean, there were bills to raise pay in the fast food industry, as we mentioned, for healthcare workers like janitors and security guards, even hospital gift shop workers to 25 an hour, increasing paid sick days. Like, is one of those personally closer to you or more hard fought or I don't know, just like a bigger win? You know, I you know I want to lean towards all of them are big Obviously, wins. I yeah. don't want to pick one over the other. I think when you're talking they're all about your babies. <laughs> they're all my babies. When you're talking about fast food and healthcare, though, if you put those together, we're talking about over a million workers that are going to see substantial raises. I would couch them as one of the greatest blows to poverty in, in generations. So those two are, are ones that I would say stand out. On the fast food industry, this was part of a kind of more complicated deal to take a referendum off the ballot that would have rolled back protections. Um, We don't have to get into all of the nitty gritty, but I'm curious why you think the industry engaged. Look, I I think that the industry realizes just what I said to you, the resiliency of the workforce and that the battle and the fight wasn't going to stop. And so we came into the legislature this year with a multifaceted strategy, one to change the referendum process to Mm -hmm. be more fair to voters, another one to bring back joint liability, which is an issue we negotiated out of the original uh, bill of, of fast food. And the third one was to create the Industrial Welfare Commission, where regardless of what happened on the referendum, workers would have a voice. One of the bills that had been a priority of Lorena Gonzalez for many years yeah. uh, is to allow legislative staff to organize. And that got stalled um, for many years. It got through to the governor. He signed it. What impact do you think that could have on the way things work up there? You know, look, I, I, I was a legislative staffer, and so I can speak to some of the benefits they don't get and the needs that they have as staff. I think you're going to create longevity in the workforce. I think you're going to have more committed workforce. It's a very young staff. People transition in and out a lot. Um, Does it change the power yeah, dynamics the, at all? or the politics. Yeah, yeah. I think it changes. I, you know, I, I think people are going to stay true to where their politics are, but it's going to create staff that have more knowledge, even with term limits and education and the history of what's happening, and hopefully a happier group of people that have power to sit at 
the table and decide on the working conditions. It was an exciting win that Lorena Gonzalez has led for some time and another one that took many years to get across the finish line, speaking to the the vetoes that happened earlier this year. I think people underestimate that, how often these bills have been coming and coming. We've seen this around criminal justice as well. I want to ask you, kind of looking ahead to 2024, um, business interests are running a ballot measure that would essentially retroactively invalidate many taxes and fees that both local and state jurisdiction, you know, rely on. It would also make it way harder to increase revenues in the future. There's been this whole move by Democrats and SEIU to put another ballot measure on um, that would sort of change the Constitution so that this measure would need two thirds as well. Talk about just like the politics here. How big of a priority is this in 2024? Um, and what are what is the case you all will be making to the electorate? I mean, it is the priority. There is nothing more that we're focused on than the business roundtable proposal and the threat that it proposes to all of our communities. You know, look, I, I think... How would you describe yeah, the threat? It's, it's oh, sure, really complicated. I, could, I, could, I know, it is, right? <laughs> I could describe it to you. I mean, really, the intent of this is to really strap local government and state government and the executive branch from raising any revenue. And we're talking about revenue that speaks to homelessness that you guys talked about at the start of the show, that speaks about emergencies. If there's an earthquake or another pandemic, you know, these, uh, they're calling it the Taxpayer Protection Act. I would argue that it actually does the opposite. It doesn't protect constituents. It leaves us pretty vulnerable without the ability to create solutions for how to get out of a lot of the situations that we know all too well. Is that an opening, though? Because it strikes me that a local supervisor or city council member in a red county also wants to be able to pay for fire and trash and streets. Like, what conversations are you having maybe on the other side of the aisle about that? We're having conversations with everybody because I think everyone, as speaking to the Board of Supervisors you mentioned on both sides of the aisle, can see some impact. And it's probably why you've seen the governor and the legislature file the petition with the Supreme Court trying to get this measure off of the ballot in November because of its threat. And I do think it speaks to folks across the aisle because it ties their hands on their ability to improve the conditions of their communities. Looking at the Senate race, you know, one of the bills, as we said, that uh, the governor vetoed was uh, pay for striking workers after a couple of weeks on the picket line. Now, Adam Schiff, who is running for the Senate, says he's going to introduce a bill to make that federal legislation. I think we all know how likely that is to make it through the House of Representatives or the Senate, for that matter. Uh, but it, what are your thoughts about that kind of a move on his part? You know, I think the good news about that is that the conversation is happening at the national level. And it's a conversation that certainly needs to happen on a national level for two reasons. Reasons. One, I think you see strikes that are happening across the nation. It's not just California. And two, and I think one of the reasons the governor cited about the veto is our unemployment insurance fund is, is, is in deficit. And we do need support from the federal government to get that fund in a, in, a, in a base where we can provide these benefits to striking workers who I agree need it. Speaking of years long problems, the unemployment exactly. fund, that is exactly. not a new issue. Another one. I want to ask you about a little, little labor dust up. Politico Uh-oh. had a story today about the Cal Labor Federation. This is run by former Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, yeah. a, a third friend time of yours, I'm her. sure. <laughs> yes, and she is a friend of our pod. She's yeah. been on here many times. Um, she hired one of her former consultants, Rick, Richie Ross, to consult for the Labor Fed. Yep. That's resulted in a dust-up because he has run some uh, campaigns against labor, and she has actually called in the past for a blacklist of consultants who did that. I mean, what's your take on all of this? 
You know, I, I, there's is two separate issues, right? One, as I spoke about resources earlier, you know, our union and I'm sure many others want to be sure that members' resources are spent on folks that are going to advance our values and certainly not spent on consultants that go against us in a number of races. And, and Richie Ross has, has been one of those consultants. And the second question we have, and I believe we're going to have these conversations in our labor family mm-hmm. and figure this out, is when you hire those individuals who likely should be on the blacklist but are also being paid by union membership dues to be able to do the work. And that does create some unsettling um, and I think some conversations within the labor family for us to be able to mitigate it. And I'm I'm, I'm confident that we'll be able to do that with our, our brothers and sisters. I mean, he's known for being pretty effective, though. Is there an argument? He's effective. Yeah. Is there he's an a- argument that you neuter the other side by hiring someone like that? Well, he's also got deep roots with the farm workers and Dolores Huerta. You yeah. can't you can't take that away from them. Look, but there's Prop 15, for example, and bail reform, yeah. for example. Many electoral races were literally on opposing sides, and so look, I congratulate him on the success that he has and wish him the best. Um, but the resources <laughs> of SEIU, I think our leaders would be concerned that they would be spent on a consultant who is working against us in, in many cases. And we're the definition of what I think, you know, um, uh, Lorena Gonzalez put out as, as who should qualify for the blacklist. You and your job must be uh, in many meetings with corporate leaders and lobbyists, uh, you know, going back and forth on issues, trying to co- maybe come up with common ground. I'm just wondering... Is there there a moment that comes to mind where, you know, they made a point that you hadn't thought of or they made it convincingly that made you rethink your position? I think everything that we do, we have a tendency to sit down at the table and hear from the other side. If you don't listen to the other side, you can't get to a solution. And I think those are the differences, in all honesty, of how we're able to get things signed and maybe things not getting signed. So we're always open to that. Mm -hmm. And there's always things that I think are moving that we'll hear from the other side that then we take back and figure out ways, if we can solve it, some things... I, you know, I don't buy. I walk away, you know, knowing that that's not probably a, a reality. But some things are true. What about the argument that, uh, hey, you give workers a raise, they're just going to they're going to hand it down to the consumers. They're going to raise prices. Yeah, I, I, I don't buy that as much because I think uh, handing down increases in prices to consumers has happened without raises. All right. We always like to end on a fun note. So you have a big job representing a lot of people. You're in the room on these tough negotiations. What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? That's a good <laughs> question. Remember fun? <laughs> what, what would your son say if we asked him? What do we do for fun? You know, look, spending time with my kids is probably what I do for the most fun. They all play sports, and we're all very active in, in the Sac State College events and, and football games. And um, really just trying to get some downtime with family and watching movies and just hanging out. Traveling. Did you play sports? In, in I did. I played softball in college. My brother yeah. played football at Cal Berkeley. He's the athletic director at Sac State now, oh, so wow. we're still involved in, in all the sports. And again, a huge family. So we're at sport events every weekend somewhere in Sacramento. What was your best uh, softball move? Oh, my best softball. I was a second baseman, so oh. I dove a lot. I stopped balls from going in the outfield, and I remember some big big game-winning hits I had that I still remember those like I'm still in high in college and I'm still young, but it still fires me up a little bit. Yeah. There's probably <laughs> some metaphors there for Sacramento. You it's know? true. It's true. <laughs> balls and strikes. Exactly. And I often uh, compare balls. some of this to sports, not by minimizing the work <laughs> that we do, but it is pretty competitive. All right. Tia Orr from SEIU California, thank you so much. Thank for you so much in. for having me. Thank that you. is it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer engineer today is Christopher Beal. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.